Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. A lot of people come to the reservation. You see all these church vans during the summer traveling, zigzagging across the reservation. And they spend about a week or two and then they go back home. Now, some of those people, they come back year after year after year. And those weeks have turned into months. And then they retire from working and then they start spending more time. And a lot of them have gotten to know a particular community quite well. And they've been able to do good and to help and to learn and grow from that as well. And it's been a beautiful, beautiful experience. But there's too many people who are in a different time zone than the time zone of God. Often they're too much in a hurry. What they ought to do is come with no agenda and come and sit and watch. But they don't have that comprehension of time. White people like to have an answer fairly soon to a question. They don't like to wait for the Native people to talk. Sometimes they answer their own question. People say, hi, how are you? And a lot of times, if you don't say nothing, they keep on walking. And you can tell that that individual really doesn't care how you are. That's a very intimate question. And my personality and my upbringing is like, do you have a right to ask me that question? Have you earned the right to ask that question? Are you ready to sit and listen with me as we become intimate? Because that's an intimate question and it requires intimacy. Do you really care? I think in a lot of cases, people are just too much in a hurry. And that's not just white people. That's across the board, across cultural lines. We've adapted a lot of those things in our own culture. A lot of Navajo people will say, hi, how are you? And they move on. I don't like to answer that question because I don't think people are that serious about it. Now, for people that have gotten to know me, they will say, I really would like to know. And then they'll sit down. (laughs) On today's Story Saturday, I'm thrilled to share with you a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago. A conversation where we sat down and really talked, even though it was our very first conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. This is Elmer Yazzie. I'm an art teacher and a coach and an artist. Let me introduce myself in my language. I found Elmer through my friend Aaron, one of his former students. I've been doing some research on the Navajo Nation after finding out that they were one of the places hit hardest by COVID-19. Almost everything about our conversation was a surprise in the best way possible. We did talk about COVID-19, but barely. There was too much else to talk about. For one thing, Elmer is a lifelong artist who has shown his work all over the world. 
though it's not in his credentials, he's also something of a theologian. Throughout our conversation, I kept thinking I had him pinned down. And then he would say something that completely toppled the idea that I had about him. And it was a delight to talk to someone whose view of the world is so refreshingly different, who so effortlessly holds the tensions we all live in every day. I realized after talking with Elmer that the ability to hold conflicting views about the world without letting them tear you apart is a mark of wisdom. And if there's one word I would use to describe Elmer, it's wise. I wanted to understand how he came to this nuanced worldview, and so I asked him to start from the beginning. I was born in 1954. I was raised on a small farm, about 10 acres, in uh, Shiprock, New Mexico, on the Navajo Reservation. The Navajo Reservation is primarily in northwest New Mexico. There's a larger section of it in northeastern Arizona. And there's a smaller section in southeast Utah. It's a fairly large piece of land. It's bigger than the state of West Virginia. It's beautiful. Lots of canyons, rock formations. The land is allowed to be what it needs to be. You'll find that on a lot of reservations. They leave the land alone because they have such a high honor for the earth. They just let it be. And they choose to live on smaller pieces of property. They don't expand up a lot of land to build the places they live. A lot of the homes would be considered quite humble. We had a log cabin, not very big, just one room. And there were uh, six of us who lived there, my three siblings and my mom and dad. And we didn't have electricity or running water. My dad was an interpreter for the white missionary. And the white missionary encouraged my dad to go to a Bible school. So in 1957, our family moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and my dad attended what at the time was called Reform Bible Institute. Then in 1960, we moved back to Shiprock, New Mexico. My dad enrolled my two older brothers, my sister and me, at Rehoboth Boarding School. It was about 100 miles away. When I was in sixth grade, my sixth grade classroom teacher noticed that I was drawing quite a bit. And it was a distraction for my education. And so it had an effect on my grades. Well, instead of criticizing me, the teacher took that interest of mine and said, I would like for you to do a painting for me. And then proceeded to give me a canvas board and some oil paint and brushes that she had owned. And then gave me some time to to work on this painting. When I finished the painting, I showed it to her and she was really excited and happy. It was the very first painting that I ever did. And it was a picture of a dog and a horse on top of a hill overlooking the valley. Like they were good buddies. She paid me $20, and I just thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And our boarding school had a candy store, and I carefully budgeted out my my passion for Big Hunk Candy Bar. Anyway, I carried on from there through high school. So I went to college, and I majored in art, and I became an education major. So I've just completed my 44th year in education. It's been an enjoyable journey. That journey has taken Elmer all over the world, 
to Canada, China, Israel, and Germany. He spent a decade traveling throughout the southwest of the United States, painting huge murals that would often take him many months or even years to complete. He did one for a church that was 4,000 square feet. It took him 21 months to complete. In 1985, I also started working with yucca brushes. I started making my own paint brushes from the yucca leaf that we have here in higher elevation of New Mexico. And I began to share that with others and, and teach other people how to do that. Nobody else was using that type of yucca. And I was framing my brushes to go with my paintings. As far as I know, nobody else is doing, still to this day, nobody's doing that. And I'm still using yucca brushes for the smaller pieces, but I have fallen in love with watercolor. I still do canvases, but one of the easiest, most fun things to do is to put up a, a sheet of watercolor paper and just paint. I've painted much bigger watercolors using commercial brushes up to eight feet by four feet takes anywhere from 12 to 20 hours to do. I make clay cradle boards, little teaching tools, and I often make those and give those to women who are going to have their first baby. When it comes to art, there's not much that Elmer doesn't do. When my friend Erin put me in touch with him, she talked a lot about the cradle boards and about how much she'd learned about the Navajo Nation through the experience of making one. It's a great experience to sit together with them and build these cradle boards. I believe that all art educators need to be artists. I should understand what kind of struggles my students face when they're drawing, painting, doing pottery and other things. I find that it's very helpful in helping students to overcome challenges with their own work. My students experience a lot of studio art. I'm a studio art educator. I will talk about what has happened in a general format of art history, but I'm not an art historian. I've chosen to look at history and say, you know, I need to learn what I can about life. I'm not here to destroy. I'm here to love. I'm here to be empathetic. I'm here to help. Elmer talks about this country's history in a way that I've never heard anyone do before. In the same breath, he'll talk about both the beauty and the pain of that history. He somehow looked at that history and despite all of the complicated truths of colonialism and genocide, is both deeply Christian and deeply Navajo. People came out here and saw this beautiful place. A lot of the people that came out first were traders. Many of the traders learned how to speak enough of the language to communicate with the people in the area. In most cases, it turned out to be a great relationship. A lot of the communities are named after the trader because the people in the community respected that person. And the traders came out from a lot of different areas and they stayed. They were here for decades. And yes, there have been some terrible, terrible things that I know about, stories that I know about, personal experiences, personal stories, the abuse of the boarding schools, the history of 
the federal government and the native population. A lot of that goes back to the doctrine of discovery and how that has influenced the writing of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. The words chosen do not favor the indigenous people. You can go into lots and lots of details about the kind of terrible things that have happened, but there's a certain point where people have a choice, the choice to learn how to wrestle with these things and move on in a positive manner, or there's a choice to remain upset and angry, frustrated. All of us have a choice. Everybody's been treated wrongfully in some manner throughout the days of their lives. And regardless of the extreme differences, there's a choice in how we respond. And I found that my faith in God and my love of who God is, all you have to do is look at the life of Christ and the way he was treated and crucified. And yet he was able to continue to speak those final words on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. As you grow in your faith, you also grow in a greater understanding of how God flows through who you are. And as you grow, you don't worry about things because you know that as life goes on, as days pass, God will take care of what needs to happen. I'm not worried about that. A very wise Lakota woman speak a year and a half ago in South Dakota. She, she was talking about some of the history and the terrible things that have happened. And she said, but we cannot blame the white people anymore because we are doing this to ourselves. And I thought, you know, she's realizing there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of traumatic history. There's behavior patterns that have come out of that history. And it has had an influence on the dysfunction on the reservation. But before all that history, there were a lot of beautiful things, but there were still people who were warring against each other. The Ute tribe would steal Navajo children and take them as slaves. The Navajos would take Ute children and take them as slaves. It was those kinds of things going on prior to the European influence and invasion. Gold. The native people, they don't have any interest in that. They were more concerned about other areas of creation. But the Europeans were crazy about it. And whenever gold came about, they just went into a frenzy and didn't care who, who they kicked and who they killed and who they moved over. And they felt like they had that right to do so because of the way they looked down on the native population as uneducated and all these other things. And yet, I think the Native people were, and still are in many ways, very educated, very wise, very capable of living in balance. Every one of us has been abused in some way. If we keep it a secret, we're not going to change very easily or quickly. If we talk about it, if we commune with others about our weaknesses, first of all, we have to identify what they are. We can't be in denial of what they are. If we can do those things and be able to communicate with sincere, genuine, humble people, we're going to grow. We're going to change.
it feels like you've come to this very wise perspective, but were there times in your life where you really were angry? When we were living in Grand Rapids from 1957 to 1960, my dad would take us to these churches and we would sing a Christian song, a Sunday school song in the Navajo language. After the service, the white people would come up to us and take our picture and they would maybe give us a silver dollar or something. We were tokens. I did not think of it that way back then. I didn't understand. We were obedient to our parents. And my father even has said that when he became a Christian, he left his traditional ways that he was raised in because he thought that becoming a Christian meant turning away from who you are. You know, he he turned away from his Navajo culture. My mother did the same thing. Later on in their life, they both proclaimed to us, their children, we were brainwashed. We thought that this one way was correct. We find out later that it's really not correct. There's a way to balance in wisdom, being able to live as a Navajo and also as a Christian. The church has a history of ruling with a very hard hand and of being forceful and cruel about the way that you are supposed to live. The church also has this idea sometimes of, we have the answer, you don't. You do not have any idea about spirituality. There are some things that I've learned about the spirituality of art from the connections that I have and the relationships that I have with Native artists. I didn't learn about the spirituality of of art from the Bible and from the Christian. Later on, as that understanding of the spirituality of art became embedded in my whole mind frame and heart frame, then I began to, to understand more about what the scripture teaches about it. And I've been able to teach my students about God as artist, man as artist, and life as art. I find it very important for my students to understand. God created all of these people in the world. And God intended for that diversity to be such a beautiful sight in the eyes of insightful human beings. For people who who knew how to embrace diversity and were not uncomfortable around others who were different than them, but looked at people as human beings. Those types of people are very, very much like the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul comes to the city of Athens. He's led there by the Holy Spirit, and he sees all these altars to all these Greek gods. He doesn't say anything right away, but what he does is he meets with the believers. As he's teaching them and fellowshipping with them, it's the Greeks, the Areopagus from Mars Hill. They come to him and, and ask him, what are you teaching? And so he starts to tell them. And then they said, well, we'd like for you to address us all. So they brought him to Mars Hill. And if you read in Acts chapter 17, he, he does not criticize them like We were criticized in boarding school not to speak our language. We were criticized and told 
that who we were as Navajo was wrong. Basically, they were trying to turn us into white people. Paul doesn't do that. He compliments them. His first words are, I see in every way that you are very religious. I look at those words in the NIV and I don't think of them as criticisms. I think of that as a compliment. It's great that you're very religious. I also see that you have an altar to an unknown God. So then he, he proceeds to tell them who that unknown God is. Now, the history behind that altar to the unknown God comes from a plague that took place in that region of the world and was killing people at a point where the Areopagus said, we want to help. We want to stop this thing. So they started thinking the one way we can do this is to build altars to all the gods that we know. So they had all these altars built, but the plague never went away. And there was an individual on the island of Crete who brought to the attention of the Areopagus, maybe there's a God that we don't know about. And that took a lot of humility. These were the philosophers. These were the religious leaders. And yet they took time to think about that. They built an altar to an unknown God. The plague went away. Who is this God that we don't know? that is so great that this plague goes away, 500 years later, Paul comes. Now, God's timing is beyond our understanding. And so Paul comes and, and introduces to them. And you had people who believed from there. Don Richardson was involved with the research and finding out that story and the details of that story and wrote about it in a book some years ago. That's a powerful story. Shelter in Place is grateful to be sponsored by Delta Wines, the refined daily drinker with a social good built in. These California wines are fresh and approachable, perfect for casual dinners at home. For every $15 bottle you buy, Delta donates $1 to fighting climate change. Buy online at winesforchange.com and use the code SHELTER to get 10% off. I know the story Elma is referring to in Acts 17. When I read that passage, I always assumed that Paul was being sarcastic. But Elmer's view of this story and of the world is so much more generous. It allows for all of the complicated mess of humanity without sweeping anything under the rug. I never heard the background about the altar to the unknown God. I didn't know about the plague 500 years before. It was our own plague that prompted me to reach out to Elmer in the first place. At the time, when Elmer and I spoke a few weeks ago, he told me that one in 33 people on the reservation had tested positive for COVID-19. As of this week, the death rate in the Navajo Nation is higher than in any single U.S. state. Even though new cases and deaths have declined over the past couple of weeks, the situation is complicated. The Navajo Nation is a food desert with only 13 grocery stores. A third of the residents don't have running water, which forces people to travel to neighboring states for basic items. While the Navajo Nation is reinstating their lockdown for the next two weekends and requiring that masks be worn in all public spaces, Arizona is opening up, despite a recent spike in COVID-19 cases. We've had a lot of deaths. We've had... A lot of positive cases and 
tremendous illnesses. Relatives of mine have been ill, and the description that I get back is something terrible. The worst flu, the worst experience I've ever been through. Diarrhea, fever, flu symptoms, achiness, coughing, all at once. And it feels like you're going to die. And many have passed on. We have a lot of large families. And a lot of the families traditionally live in close physical proximity to each other. Social distancing is not a Navajo thing. It makes it harder when your relatives are right next door to you. There are thousands of families with no running water. There are thousands of families with no electricity. That's a huge reason why our reservation was hit so hard. A couple of weeks ago, I would find myself just weeping, just crying, just going through my normal day in tears. I've spent a lot of my time praying for people. And every Tuesday, I deliver food up north of here from our campus. There are a lot of our, our people from closely connected to the school who are delivering food every Tuesday. When I go out to deliver this food to an area about 80 miles away, I make several stops along the way. I bring a horse trailer and I, I load up. People help me load up and and um, it's all pretty, very well organized. And uh, that food gets delivered to those people. That's just what I do. I'm one person, and there are many who do that. This whole COVID experience, the hope, the prayer that people have for each other is that we would humble ourselves and become closer and realign ourselves within a spiritual time frame and a spiritual walk. The short time that we have abandoned creation, it has begun to thrive. I've walked to my classroom now and then throughout this time frame. And about three weeks ago, I turned toward the classroom to the entrance and I stopped and I said, oh my goodness, and I started laughing. I said, welcome, it's good to see you. And there were all these weeds that were growing and they had made their way through the cracks and they were thriving. And I thought, now there's a good picture of what happens when people leave creation alone. If you leave a car, something that a human being made, it breaks down. But if you leave something that God made alone, it just does the opposite. It thrives. And that should be a huge lesson for us as human beings on stewardship. In the course of our conversation, I found out that Elmer knows Mark Charles, who is an independent presidential candidate and who I interviewed in episode 72, A Common Memory. Mark was one of Elmer's former students at Rehoboth. I asked Elmer what he thought of Mark running for president. I love Mark. I pray for him. And I believe that he is bringing a brand new perspective and it's very intriguing. He's done a lot of hard work to get where he is, to build and to climb. He's worked very, very hard on a very small budget. Uniqueness is a characteristic that just magnetizes me. Mark is unique. He's bringing stuff up that I've never heard people talk about before. And he's speaking with a lot of courage. It's upsetting to a lot of people. 
it's so different. I welcome it. It's really good for our country to listen to it. And I encourage them to, to take a look and reevaluate. It's always good to look back on things. It takes humility to be able to listen to Mark. You have to be humble because you're willing to sit there and uh, hear things that you have not understood and have not agreed to. There's a tremendous story in the book of Exodus about a conversation between God and Moses. And when I read that story, I can see Moses with his hands together on the robe of God saying, you said you were going to do this, do it. And God come back and say, I'll do it, but you've got to do this. And Moses says, yes, I'll do that. But this is what I want you to do. There was a deep passion in his voice and in his way of presenting himself, courageous to stand and demand God to reveal the plan. That's what a lot of people never get to. They never get to that point where they are holding God by the cuff of the collar saying, I've been praying all my life to know what to do. I don't feel any value. What's my divine task? And when they get there, oh my goodness, as you grow in age and as you are involved in the Lord's work, there's a tremendous seasoning that at some point in time, you realize the courage you need is available and it's this gift. And I want to encourage you to continue in that courage and boldness to speak as you are inspired and not to be apologetic about that. Elmer, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. It's been enjoyable. I've enjoyed it very much. I would love to converse with you on other stuff as we go through life. I might say, you know what? I need to call Laura Davis on that. I would love that. I would welcome that. I really mean that. And and just find out what she thinks. As you know, we're not supposed to do this life stuff here on this earth, our temporary home, alone. We're not supposed to do it alone. I hope Elmer and I have more conversations in the future. I think we will. Because I think he's right. We're not supposed to do this alone. We need people to call us up and ask us what we think. Ask us how we're doing to sit down when we answer that question with the truth. There's so many things I'm taking from this conversation, but the daily sanity I need most right now, that maybe you need too, is that it's okay if we sit down together and find out that we disagree. We can learn a lot from each other just by listening, by speaking the truth boldly with courage, by looking honestly at the past and seeing if together, we can find a better way forward. If you found today's episode meaningful and listen on iTunes, Stitcher, or any platform that allows you to rate and review, leaving a quick note about what you appreciate about the show moves us a little closer to being able to make this work sustainable, not just now, but in the future. Shelter in Place is proud to be supported by Imagine Mindfulness an online mindfulness-based stress reduction program to reduce stress, anxiety, depression, and pain 
while improving awareness, clarity, and concentration. Support this show by using the promo code SHELTER when you register online at imaginemindfulness.com. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode, as well as ways to support us at laurajoycedavis.com. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Tamara Kemsley is our associate producer. Nate Davis is our creative director. And Sarah Edgel is our design director. Until Monday, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.